This is the Word of God. Folks, if you keep that uh, passage open before you, I'm going to speak for a few minutes about some of the stuff early in that chapter, and then we'll break for a moment and we'll come back to look at some stuff later on in that chapter. Let me just pray before we do that. Um, Lord, we have been thinking already and singing about how your coming in Jesus brought light to a dark world. Lord, this era of the judges is a dark time, and we're looking to see um, what glimpses of, of light we can see in your Bible's record of these dark times. Help us to, to see something here in this text this evening that might inspire us to live well in the times in which we find ourselves. Amen. Although there's a a lot in the book of uh, Judges that's been quite obscure, if you've been with us in this series, you'll know that. Some of the guys we've been learning about, you'll probably not have thought about very often before. But yet one or two of the Judges are really well known. In November time, we thought of Gideon, who is... um, on the Sunday school curriculum, I think. Uh, we, we've heard of Gideon before. But if, if there's one judge who stands out and who's better known than any other, then it's, it's Samson. Samson is the last of the God-appointed judges in the book. And he's, he's famous for all sorts of things. He's famous for his long hair. He's famous for uh, Delilah, his, uh, one of his wives. And he's famous for, for his strength. You, you might imagine when, when I remind you of Samson, you might think, well, that, that all sounds a little bit cartoonish, a little bit Sunday schoolish, the kind of thing that was, was right for holding the attention of an eight or nine-year-old, but, but maybe not uh, very rich material for a grown-up congregation to think about. I'd suggest that that would be an entirely wrong way to think about uh, Samson and the biblical record uh, of his uh, life and witness. So let's have a look. In Samson, we're going to see all the flaws that we see in in God's people in his times and and ever since. But also we're going to get some wonderful hints of uh, a perfect judge Uh, a saviour who is to come. Just before we get stuck into Samson, I thought we'd take a second, always trying to put everything into its fullest context. So where does Samson fit into the the book of Judges? I thought one helpful way to do that would be to show you this table. Uh, Lisa, if we can pop that up. Um, I've put this table together simply to illustrate one simple point, and that is that life's getting worse and worse for the people the further we go in the book of Judges. Judges is, as I've told you before, it's a cycle, but it's, it's, not, it's not just turning a circle. It's a downward spiral, so things are getting worse all the time. And the way to read this table, there are two columns of figures there. The left-hand one tells you how many years of oppression that under an enemy the people are suffering under around about the time of a particular judge, and then how many years of peace you get 
after that cycle. So early in the, the judge's narrative, you have Othniel. The people at eight years, they were oppressed for eight years, but then 40 years of peace. And you're thinking, well, that's, that's not bad. Ehud, he is a judge who comes after 18 years of oppression, but then 80 years of peace. So, but then you'll, you'll see I've changed color as we get to the bottom. Jephthah is the judge we looked at last time we were together. Richie helped us think about Jephthah. There had been 18 years of oppression and only six years of peace. The oppression starting to outweigh. And by the time we get to Samson, the people are oppressed for 40 years. Longer chunks of oppression. So it's a simple a point to make that, that the further we go into this book, the longer the period of time that the people are under the judges, the worse things are, are getting for them. As soon as we turn into chapter 13, we're met with a familiar phrase from the book of Judges. For me, it's the oh no, not again phrase. Okay, I don't know if, if you've been reading it. It's just there. It's used in almost every one of the cycles. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And there's part of you thinking, this is so boring because no matter how much God is good to them, no matter how, how much grace there is, we end up back in the same place. And it seems terribly boring until you realize how terribly realistic it is. And you think, okay, maybe that's why it's there. Because that's how we live. We've seen this phrase repeated six times already in the book of Judges. This is the seventh and last appearance of the phrase. And I say it's the last appearance of the phrase, but it's not the last time that this phrase will be brought to mind. Because there's a double conclusion in the book which says much the same thing, but it it comes at it in the opposite way. So if you flick over to the very last verse of the book, chapter 21, verse 25, page 266, you'll find there the closing sentence of the whole book of Judges. And we talked about this when I introduced the whole book. I started at the end of it. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. Now, the NIV hasn't helped us with this translation because more literally, that verse reads like this. In those days, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Okay? Do you see the point the narrator's making here? He's written the book where he's told us over and over and over again about people doing things that were wrong in God's eyes. And then this book culminates by saying that it was right in their own eyes. The same actions are wrong in God's eyes, but right in in their own eyes. And it's enough to get a discerning reader thinking, well, Flip, who's got the vision here? Who's got the good eyes? God or the people? Who's seeing clearly? Whose eyes matter more? God's eyes or mine? Tim Keller offers a couple of suggestions for how we might reflect on this uh, dynamic. First of all, he says, it gives us pause to think about how we define sin. 
Because there seems to be a stark contrast here in Judges between what God sees as sin and what people like us are inclined to see as sin. Our own eyes or the eyes of the Lord. Scripture, I think, you probably won't be surprised at me saying it, this asks us to pay attention to what, what the Lord sees, what, what we see through the eyes of the Lord. And I'm sure you'll appreciate how entirely countercultural this is. You see, we live in an age, to, to give it its a more intellectual title, we live in an age of moral relativism. And that means we say things like, only you can define what's right or wrong for you. In other words, each one of us gets to see through our own eyes and to say what is right in our own eyes. I follow my own feelings, my own heart's desires, my own mind's perceptions. They're the only way to determine what's right and wrong. Now, even if you don't believe in God or take the Bible seriously and... um, that, that's, that's a possibility. I, I'm not taking for granted that everybody here uh, does uh, believe in God or take the Bible seriously. Think about that, that position for a moment. That idea that everybody gets to determine what's right and wrong and that that's a healthy, enlightened, modern way of approaching issues of morality. If you think about that for even a second, you'll see it has some serious problems with it. For example, if we all get to define what's good and what's evil by looking through our own eyes, how can we ever tell the Nazis that they were wrong to exterminate six million Jews and other minorities? I've, I've had the opportunity to visit a few different places where there are exhibitions of Nazi propaganda which make it entirely clear that in their eyes, they were doing the right thing. They were ridding the earth and humanity of a scourge in the Jewish people and in other unwanted minorities. Folks, as soon as we admit that our own moral vision may not be 2020 vision, may not be crystal clear, and that we don't have a very, that we're not, not brilliant at defining sin ourselves, then we have a question, well, well, who then? Who gets to define it? If, if I can't do it for myself or not very well, how will I know what's good and what's evil? Should I listen to the experts? Should I listen to the majority? I live in a democracy. Should they decide? Well, history shows that these approaches don't avoid holocausts either. And that brings us back to the Bible. The Bible encourages us to let our creator, the one who made us, define what's right and what's wrong for us. The Bible encourages us to say what God sees as sin will be sin for us, regardless of how we feel, or what the experts tell us, or what the culture agrees on. That it is sin. There's a second thing that we can learn from these two contrasting phrases about sin, 
And that's the, the deceitfulness of sin. We're reminded here how easily we can deceive ourselves. The Israelites will have had their own reasons for living the way they lived and for doing what they did. They'll have had their own psychological and cultural rationalizations. There's a kind of a group denial that can go in, uh, can go around, and it can be as, as large as a nation or a whole culture that can be blinded by their own, by their own view of things. In their own eyes, or by their own perception, there's nothing wrong with what they were doing. Somewhere deep down, because they were God's people, I think they'll have known that they were far from God. I think they will have known that. But there's a way of living where you keep that so far down and so suppressed that in the everyday you have a good reason and a good excuse and a good explanation for everything, for our lifestyles. Reading a passage like this, I, I think we, we might be encouraged to be a little bit less sure of ourselves, a little bit more careful, a little bit more open to constantly evaluate ourselves and our motives. Pay attention to God's Word and Scripture to the wise words of anyone who's kind enough to tell us the truth. Because we'll we'll always want to rationalize our sin. Our materialism, our worry, our bitterness, our pride. There's a 17th century Puritan, Thomas Brooks, he once put it like this very vividly. Satan paints sins with virtue's colors. There's a way that sin can be not just palatable, but almost beautiful, if we're not careful. Let's ask God to open our eyes to see how sin deceives us and ask him to guard us and keep us. Just now we're going to sing a couple of songs together. Um, I've just chosen two songs that ask us Uh, that allow us to ask God to open our eyes. Um, It's a very biblical metaphor right through Scripture. I think this passage has guided us to think about it. We'll keep our seats um, as as we sing um, and maybe allow the stewards to lift this evening's offering. We're going to sing, Open the eyes of my heart, Lord, and then open my eyes, Lord, I want to see Jesus. We've just been singing this song, Open My Eyes, We Want to See Jesus. That, that's what we want to try and do in Judges 13, is to see uh, Jesus in this passage. Um, we've already said at the outset that there'd be hints, as we look at Samson together, there'd be hints of a perfect Savior who is to come. And there, there are some hints even in this uh, strange chapter 13. So let's, let's move through it and uh, see what we can see here. In Judges 13, verses 2 and 3, we're introduced to uh, Samson's mom and dad. His dad's called Manoah. He's from a tribe of Dan. And his mom's called, well, we don't know what she's called, but she's, she's the hero in this passage. We're told in verse 3 that the angel of the Lord appeared to her. So God's, God's moving. Uh, we know this pattern now. 
because we've seen it so often in Luke's gospel, that the angel, the messenger comes and he tells us about something that God's going to do. So there's an interesting thing about Samson. He is chosen as a judge even before he's conceived. Uh, Samson doesn't really just stand shoulder to shoulder with the other judges. In a sense, he's the, at least in theory, he's the pinnacle of this way of God being with his people. The possibilities around this boy are huge. So Manoah's wife, we're told, was sterile and childless, but an angel of the Lord tells her you're going to conceive and have a baby. She's told then that she isn't allowed to drink alcohol or anything unclean or cut his hair because he's to be a Nazarite, set apart to God from birth, and he'll begin the deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. I remember thinking when I came across this phrase that it had something to do with Nazareth. And I thought, well, what's this stuff about what you eat and not getting your hair cut got to do with being from Nazareth? Let's, let's, it feels like it might be important in this story, this stuff about the Nazarite, because it's repeated so often. And um, Let me tell you just very briefly that if you look up number six, it explains what a Nazarite vow is. It has three main stipulations. You abstain from alcohol, you abstain from cutting hair, and you abstain from being in the company of any dead body. That's what a Nazarite vow is. Now, what's the point of it? The point is, it's like making a deal with God. You make this deal with God, you say, I'll make this vow because you're asking God for special help in, in a crucial time. It was a sign that you were looking for God with real intensity, that you were hungry to see him coming to work in your circumstances. Normally it was a, a voluntary thing, you, you went and you made the vow, and it was a temporary thing. You said, I'll, I'll do this for six months. I'll keep this vow. Now, Samson's vow is a little bit different, isn't it? Because it's not voluntary. Samson doesn't have much to do with being a Nazarite. He's it's sort of whoosh, cast on him. There you are, son. You're a Nazarite. And it's not temporary. It's for the whole of his life. But his mom takes this very seriously. We see that she obeys everything that the angel commands her. So I suppose the the one thing that we would say is that this boy, even before he's born, has this high sense of being dedicated to God. He's for God's purposes in a way that you could hardly say about anyone else in the whole of the Old Testament. Do you see what I mean? Samson's like, he's, he's right up there. The potential, this boy selected before birth, these Nazarite vows around him, is set apart to God from before his birth. He's a Nazarite, but it's not the only thing that's special about him. His birth is miraculous. He's going to be born of a childless and sterile mother. It's a common theme throughout Scripture, isn't it? That God has often chosen to work in the world through people whose existence, humanly speaking, is impossible. So you have Isaac, born to Abraham, whose wife, Sarah, is a barren woman. There's Samuel, whose mom, until the time of his birth, 
was not able to have children. Even John the Baptist, been learning about him on Sunday mornings, Luke's gospel. The one who was sent to get the world ready for Jesus. What do we know about him? His mother, Elizabeth, was old and had been barren all her life. And then if we talk about kids who are born in supernatural or miraculous circumstances, then Mary's pregnancy with Jesus blows the category altogether. It's not just that she's old. It's not just that she's been barren. She's a virgin. This takes the miracle right off the scale. So there's this thread running through Scripture that God works through these births that aren't humanly possible. God seems to have chosen to work in these very circumstances. It like, it's like he wants to keep showing us that this, this salvation that he's bringing into the world couldn't have happened by any normal human planning or circumstance. Do you remember what it was that the angel said to Mary? Angel comes to Mary and says, you're going to have a baby. Mary says, whoa, wait a minute. I'm a virgin. What is it the angel says? Nothing is impossible with God. So this, this kid, he's a Nazarite. He's got this impossible birth. So in a sense, this, you know, there are glimpses of, of Jesus here. This sign that God's really powerfully at work here. Although Samson's birth in some ways stands in continuity with Jesus' birth, there's a couple of ways in which it's different that are worth reflecting on too. First of all, the other births, these ones we've been talking about, they were all about lifting the mother out of disgrace. In, in the culture of God's people uh, throughout all those centuries, to be a childless woman would have been an awful burden to bear. On top of your own disappointment, there was a social stigma, a double heartache for a woman to bear. So whenever God came to these women and said, you are going to have a baby, it was a lifting out of the disgrace. It was a beautiful moment. It wasn't like that with the birth of Jesus. It was a plunging into disgrace for Mary. Mary, you're not married but you're going to have a kid. Folks, never ever forget the shame and the scandal of Jesus' birth and much of his life on this earth. To come and to be with us, to rescue us, he had to lose all reputation and honor in human eyes. A second contrast. Samson's salvation, the salvation he could bring to Israel, was only ever partial, whereas Jesus brings full salvation. We're told in chapter 13, verse 5, that Samson would only begin the deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. Samson's the last of the judges, and he, he makes some progress against the Philistines, the enemies of his time. 
the complete victory over the Philistines would have to wait for that until King David, uh, uh, an heir, if you like, of Samson, an anointed king, would, would have victory over the Philistines. But if you think about it, David's victory is not complete either. It's a military victory over one enemy for one period of time. David couldn't win victory over the, the sin in his own life. If you know anything of David's life. He couldn't help other people with their sins. So David points us further to another king, a future king. Only in Jesus Christ is there full and final salvation. In this sense, Jesus is the only one who ever gets the job done. An angel once told Mary's fiance, Joseph, that he'll save his people from their sins. So Samson points us to David in the first instance, but David bounces us on to Jesus. Folks, by the way, I can't remember if I've mentioned this before. The word judge means savior. The word judge doesn't mean judge. It means leader, rescuer. The person whom God sends to save his people in that time. So all these judges we're getting to see who are a pale imitation of what we really need, they all point us to the true judge, the great savior. We're nearly done. A few more minutes. We've spent the, all of our time so far in the first five verses, so don't, don't panic. Uh, as I say, a few more minutes and we're done. This chapter here tells the story of Samson's mother, full of her trust and her obedience, and of a father who struggles to keep up. There's a bit of debate in the commentaries. I, I found this quite interesting. Um, some commentaries look at verse 8, and they say that Manoah, um, Samson's dad, has no faith. Because he comes and he asks the angel, how do you bring up a Nazarite son? So their point is, he should have known how to bring up a Nazarite son. Any proper Jew would know how to do that. That's not really how I read it. I I thought it was a lovely line and a lovely prayer that I as a parent would love to adopt and to pray this prayer. Look at verse 8. Let this man of God you sent to us come again. And teach us how to bring up the boy who is to be born. What a great prayer for a parent. Teach me how to bring up my son or my daughter uh, who you've given me. So the angel does come back and Manoah gets a chance to ask face to face about the rule for this boy's life is the way he puts it in verse 12. And the angel doesn't give an answer. Not, Not properly anyway. A couple of interesting things here. Manoah offers him food. Um... If you offered food in that culture, and I don't know if it's entirely different today, if you offer food to somebody, you kind of almost obligate them to you a wee bit. It's kind of like he offers food just to make sure that this, this angel whom he's offered hospita- hospitality is indebted to him. But as you see, the angel won't allow himself to be indebted to anyone. And there's something similar going on with the, when he asks his name, when Manoah asks the angel's name. It's like if we know, do you know if you know somebody's name, you feel you just have a wee handle on them? If they're a total stranger to you, you feel like you don't know anything about them. But once you have their name, 
Oh, I know his name. That's what Manoah wants. He wants to know this guy's name, uh, to, to know where he's coming from, to know what he's about. But again, the angel won't have it. The angel isn't going to allow anyone to control him in that way. So the angel has come again, but he doesn't answer Manoah's question. Manoah's prayed this admirable prayer in verse 8, and it seems like he hasn't had an answer. Well, if we step back, we'll see that Manoah does get the help that he needs, but it comes to him in a different form than he might imagine. He wanted to know what would be the rule for this boy's life and work. He wanted a parenting manual. What parent in our culture doesn't? Give me the book. Let me buy the book. Let me do the course, and it'll all be fine. He wants a parenting manual. And instead, God, instead of giving him more regulations, God gives him a revelation of who he is. Manoah finally gets around to making this burnt offering and this angel ascends in the flames and finally it twigs. Oh, God's been here with us. Folks, we, we all think we need more rules. If only somebody would tell me what to do. I suspect that God isn't in a hurry to give us all more rules. But he wants to give us more of himself. God isn't going to give us a guidebook for every twist and turn, every doubt and decision in our lives. But, but he will give us something much better, his own indwelling presence. When that becomes our great hunger and our great appetite. It's like, I want to dwell on this for a moment and then we're almost done. In general, parents tend to give their kids less and less specific guidance as they get older. So whenever your child's very little, you, you follow them around. Um, we have a, a new wee nephew in our family who's just over a year old and he's just got on his feet. So it's hilarious to watch my little sister tearing around after him. Don't touch that. Don't go there. Don't put that in your mouth. He, he, he doesn't know yet that sticking your finger in the socket's not a good idea. He, he doesn't know that there, there are places that he shouldn't go. But the older a kid gets, the less we want to be doing that. Don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. And the more we hope that, that they'll have imbibed from us everything that we've taught them and lived out for them before. We guide our children and we hope for a growing maturity in them. This is God's way of dealing with his people. In the Old Testament, in the childhood, in the infancy of his people, the rules are spelled out and they're stacked high and there are lots of them. In the New Testament, by contrast, you don't find Jesus giving his disciples new and more rules and regulations. Instead, he calls us to be his apprentices, his disciples, to learn from him 
how to live. He gives us his Holy Spirit who indwells us and transforms us. Folks, we need to learn and relearn the lesson of Manoah. Don't come to God looking for more rules. Come hungry for more of God. I said as I started this last section that we're looking for glimpses of Jesus and that's where we want to close for a last couple of minutes. One last wee thing. We're told in verse 24 about this wee boy who's finally born and they called him Samson. Samson means little son. It doesn't mean little son as in my wee son. It means little son as in the sun in the sky. Sounds like a quite a cool wee name, like Sonny Jim or whatever. Until you remember that in that culture, they worshipped the sun. So here we have these parents who have these extraordinary angel visitations, promises from God. They've made their Nazareth vow, and then when their kid is born, they say to themselves, what do we call him? Uh, let's call him in honor of the pagan deities. It's not great, is it? For the hundredth time in the Bible, the thousandth time, we see God at work with flawed people. Do you know what? If God didn't work with flawed people, he wouldn't work with people because they're the only people there are. Are we okay with that? We're not still getting grumpy about God working with flawed people, are we? I hope not. That's all he has to work with. People like me. Like you. So they call him little son. And we're told in these final verses that Samson grew and the Lord blessed him. We're told that the spirit of the Lord began to stir in him. Here's this kid, conceived in a miracle, Nazareth vow, set apart to serve God. God God now is blessing him. God's given him the spirit. This kid has it all. There's no judge in this book who's got as much privilege as Samson. The way this story reads, it's, it's one of those moments where you wish you didn't know the story. Because you'd close this chapter and you'd think, brilliant. Finally, we have the judge who's going to do it. He's going to pull it off. He's going to rescue God's people. He's going to be everything that we had hoped for in one of these judges. And if we went further in the story with that expectation, we'd be disappointed at every turn. Samson's flaws will remind us that God's people are going to have to wait a little bit longer before the Savior, the perfect judge, comes. Let me pray.